Welcome to the Student of the Game Fire Podcast with your host, Danny B. Today's guest is Chief Dennis Riley, 49-year veteran of the fire service with 29 of those being a chief officer. Some of his titles include retired battalion chief from the Cherry Hill, New Jersey Fire Department, fire chief with the Sunrise Beach Fire Protection District, and fire chief with the city of Pittsburgh in Kansas, owner and creator of First Line Fire Training LLC and U.S. Army veteran who deployed as a part of Operation Desert Storm. Dennis is as humble as they come, and his mantra is simple, leave it better than you found it. With that, I present Mr. Dennis Riley. Hi folks, uh, my name is Dennis Riley, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm honored to uh, be part of this project. Uh, I think there's a lot of good things going on, and I just wanted to kind of share some of my thoughts uh, with the audience. So the first thing, you know, the first question that's, you know, always comes up and is, is how did you get into the fire service? And quite honestly, man, I don't ever remember not wanting to be in the fire service when I was growing up. I mean, that's, you know, that's just what I wanted to do. I came, I grew up on Long Island outside of New York city, very blue collar town. I came from a very blue collar family and, you know, the fire service just kind of appealed to me. So at 17, I went in the U S army, uh, hoping I could do a couple of years, get some veterans preference points for the tests. Uh, I ended up doing six years in the army on active duty. I reenlisted. I, I got a pretty good assignment, kind of squirrel some money away. Uh, they weren't given the test in New York city. The first time I was getting ready to get out. Second time I was ready to get out. Uh, they still weren't given the test. Everything was all jammed up in the, you know, the, you know, the early eighties. So I just kind of hung out in North Carolina, went to work for EMS and dispatch. And from there, you know, I was always a volunteer firefighter. So when the opportunity came up, I went on to the career side and, you know, that's it. You know, that's that's in a, in a nutshell. It's really kind of funny. I was watching an interview that Phil Collins did one time and somebody, you know, the interview asked him, well, what would you do if you weren't, you know, a rock musician? And he said, I, I don't know. That's all I really know. And for me, it's kind of the same answer how I got into the fire service. But, you know, I do have a team background. You know, I played sports. You know, I understood the value of team. Uh, I wasn't really interested in just, you know, working by myself somewhere. Kind of active guy. I didn't want to work in the in an office or, you know, indoors. So it just kind of seemed natural, man. Okay. All right. Um, so needless to say, you was your goal to get on FDNY or and it just it just wasn't in the cards? Just wasn't in the cards. You know, I mean, I, you know, I always thought about, you know, moving back home. Long Island was my home and, uh, you know, I wanted to, but, you know, it just wasn't in the cards. And over the course of time, you uh, get distant from the New York lifestyle and the hard winters. And, you know, I, I started to grow up. I started to become an adult and I understand, I understood what taxes were like and the cost of housing. And, uh, you know, my wife, my wife was an emergency room nurse at Cape Fear Valley Hospital, which is in Fayetteville, outside of Fort Bragg. And, you know, we just kind of got together and life happened. And 
you know, I just stopped. I never stopped pursuing the fire service. I just stopped pursuing the FDNY because there were some opportunities that laid down in front of me that fit my life, you know, fit, you know, our, our home life and everything else. Okay. All right. And so how did uh, Cherry Hill come about? So I was, I was in Durham, North Carolina, working as a just firefighter. And I saw in advertising because I've always I've been an instructor. Uh, I've always believed in the value of training, training something that I think is absolutely critical to mission success. So in the uh, instructors magazine, there was an advertisement for a training captain at the Deer Park Fire Company, which was in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Okay, And so I applied and I, I, I took the test. I went up there for the interview, did some homework for them, and they hired me. So we had, when I went to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, we had six independent fire districts within the township. And there were all different you know, configurations of career staffing and, and combination staffing and volunteer duty crews and whatever. And over the course of time, all of those districts merged into one fire district and we transitioned into a career force. And I was already working there. So I was on the ground floor. So when the transition happened, I was appointed a training officer. I was part of that transition team to kind of put everything together, spent a year in staff, uh, went back out to the line as a captain, spent about a year out there and uh, they gave the battalions test. And, you know, all the smart guys didn't show up on test day. So they're looking around the room and they say, hey, make the tall guy. And that's how I made chief. Or I just kind of joke around. Oh. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke, man. You, okay. know, you know, you got to be a little bit humble sometimes. Can't take yourself too seriously. Right. But I, but I took the test and uh, yeah, it's really kind of funny. I wasn't going to take the test. I had a great assignment. I was working in a great firehouse. You know, we were rescue 13 slash squared 31 it was you know it was an awesome place to work worked with some really great firefighters on my platoon and the other two platoons and i'm talking one of the captains at shift change i go man you know i'm not going to take the test man i just want to be a captain i mean i'm having a great time i'm having fun i enjoy what i do and he says well man this who knows when the next test is going to come and all the captains are taking the test. And, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go too deep on this, but when you see the list of everybody who's going to take the test, you say to yourself, do you really want to work for that person right. as a chief? And I said, well, you know, there's, there's some folks on that list that, you know, are kind of marginal. So the other captain, Billy Stalford, good friend of mine said, well, if you don't take the test and they get made, and you get put on their platoon, that one's on you, bro. And I said, yeah, you're right. So I took the test and uh, I came out number one. Nice. And I, you know, I, I made battalion chief and I spent, uh, I spent about nine and a half years as a shift commander. And I was getting ready to leave and they moved me over to headquarters for my last couple months in an admin role. And then I retired and moved on. Okay. Okay. Um. So what was... Uh, the culture like in Cherry Hill at, at the time you were there? I think, it, you know, of course, everybody's going to put themselves on top. You know, it's like, oh, no, we were horrible. I think we were fantastic. I mean, we had the culture. We were dialed in. We were mission focused. We were busy. 
We had some great people in our leadership positions. And, and I still stay close to those folks uh, in Cherry Hill. A lot of them are good friends of mine. Some of them have been here to my house in Florida visiting. Uh, I, I get involved in a lot of training stuff. And I, I think it's like any organization. I mean, if we're going to be frank and honest, they've had some ups and some downs. Mm -hmm. But the foundation that I didn't build, the foundation that we built has allowed them to kind of recover from the down. And the last I spoke to guys up there, I mean, they're excited. They're on an upturn. They got a good culture. They got some solid people coming in to the organization. The last recruit class they did, they were they were all phenomenal. And that's the people that trained those recruits said that to me. So we got, man, we're starting to, you know, we've always drawn high quality people to Cherry Hill. And it's happening. And high quality people are coming so, you know, you know, they're doing well. And I think it's, you know, culture over the course of time. You know, you got, in my opinion, you got to play the long game. Yeah. And leadership, there's so much that happens in the firehouse. And, fire, and the firehouse can really drive the train. But leadership's got to set the tone. And, you know, we, we got to get everybody, you know, once we get everybody moving in the right direction, the firehouses take over and the company officers and the senior members really kind of drive that home. So, you know, I think it's a great culture up there. I think it's stood, it's stood the test of time. You know, that's the other thing. You know, I heard, I heard a really interesting quote a couple of days ago that uh, Usain Bolt said that I trained for four years mm -hmm. to run nine seconds. Mm -hmm. And some people go to the gym for a month. And they get disgusted and discouraged and they quit. Well, it's all about that long game. It's all about getting people in the leadership positions that have got the right vision, empowering the people below them, telling them, you know, what the expectations are, and then just turn them loose. Go do your job. And those people at the street level, the, the firefighters, the company officers, the battalion chiefs, when you treat them like that, they just... They wrap their arms around it, man. They make it happen. You know, I've been a fire chief in three different organizations, and I will certainly say that fire chief has got a lot of sway and a lot of influence. But those organizations that really prosper, those organizations that are on the constant uptick is because of folks in the firehouse. It's not because of me. You know, I, I kind of, you know, I, I kind of talked about vision. I talked about future. I talked about you know, mission, but those, those folks in the firehouse, man, they sunk their teeth into it and they're making it happen. So that's my thought. I, I got a question for you and, and sure. your, your opinion only. So yeah. let's say you have a, uh, your the, the boots on the ground within the department are wanting change or dialed in, but let's just say the leader isn't, isn't, on their level, like, yeah. do you think it's possible for a department to still be successful, even though the the command staff hasn't bought into that? Do you think it? Do you think it could still work? I'm going to quote Chief John Norman. It depends. It it really really depends. I mean, some of it some of it depends on you know the character and really the will of the people in the firehouse. You know, are you, 
it's never a life sentence, you know, and I, I did a podcast a long, long time ago on uh, engine house training where I talked about surviving bad assignments. And one thing, you know, one thing to think about is it's never a life sentence. Some people move on. So you've got a command staff that's really kind of not, you know, with it. Well, are they going to be there forever? The other thing that I talk about in my in, in a current presentation that I do is if you're not in their firehouse and you're not quartered where their office is and you're, you know, just turning your workplace over to them. It's like, well, they don't get it and they don't this and they don't that and they write stupid policies. Look, they're not in your firehouse. So when that hits, you say, hey, let's load up on the engine, man. Let's get out of here. Let's go drive the neighborhood. Let's go go into the apartment complexes and stretch some line. Hey, listen, let's go throw some ladders. Let's try to focus on being, and, and I talk about competitiveness a lot too. And it's really not being better than anybody else. It's being the best that you possibly can be. And you can't control what the chief does. You know, right. you may be able to offer suggestions. You may be able to give input. Uh, but if they don't want to listen to it, you know, they're still the chief. They're still the boss. They're going to do what they what they think is right. So can can you survive in those environments? Yeah. But, you know, you just got to have that strong backbone. You got to say, listen, at the end of the day, the chiefs are there 40 hours, Monday to Friday, nine to five. We're here 24-7, man. We have the ability to overcome to overcome poor coaching if we just roll up our sleeves and say, don't let them take away from us who the public is depending on. You know, one of the things that I always used to talk about, I talk about it now, is that when you report to work, say you're, you know, say you're an engine three, that's your local. Those people are depending on you. They don't, when they have an emergency, they're not calling headquarters for the fire chief to come out in his or her car. They're calling 911 and they expect the people from the firehouse right down the street to show up and take care of their problem. Whatever it is, their garage door is broke. Mrs. Smith fell out of a recliner and she needs to get back, you know, in her recliner. Or half their house is on fire and there's two kids trapped in there. They're not looking at headquarters. They're not looking at all these internal dynamics that sometimes we allow to rob our energy. We allow them to rob our focus. We allow them to, you know, take away that drive to serve. We forget all about that. So that's one thing that, you know, I have to offer when it comes to that. I'm not saying it's not a difficult situation. I'm not saying it creates problems, but at the end of the day, you'll manage the firehouse. And if you and if you expand your circle and you start talking to other people, one of the things that always resonated with me is every time we talked about a problem, well, you know, this sucks or the the boss this. And I'd go to a seminar or a conference and I hear five or six other firefighters saying the exact same thing. So it's just, you know, when you're there, it's like, man, you know, the weight of the world's coming down on your shoulders 
And a lot of times these problems that you just mentioned, they're happening in other agencies too. So it's mm-hmm. just not, you know, they're not focusing in on us. It's just, you know, who they are. It's just kind of the way it is. But Mrs. Smith doesn't care. You know? I use this example in a class that I, that I teach. And uh, I, talk, you know, I, I talk about, you know, it's our local. We own this local. We know this local better than anybody else. So if we're out, you know, we got a trash fire or something like that going on. We get another run on our local. Some people will just, ah, just send another company. What I want my folks to do is break the hose off the engine, call dispatch and say, hey, I just dropped some hose at 112 Main Street. Have a cop go by and sit on it until we clear this other run. Because I want to take that other run because I know that local, those people depend on me. This is my community. And I know it's a lift assist, but I also know that there is a key to the to the back door underneath the back mat. And I know that because that's my local. So I, you know, so I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna use the key to go in the house to pick Mrs. Smith up and put her in the chair. Okay. Because I know all those things. I'm invested in that. That's my community. These are the people I serve. You know, whatever the chief is doing in headquarters, whatever. And the reason why I make a big deal about this is if I blow the call off, you know, it's ah, whatever. And engine 14 comes in on the call. They don't realize that and they force the door. Well, Mrs. Smith called us because she doesn't have anybody else to call. And, and I also say this, look, you know, I understand you can run out there four or five times picking her up. He's a pain in the ass. I'm not going to, you know, I'm a human being. I've got those feelings. But I'm also going to say that she's calling us because she doesn't know who else to call. And uh, on a lot of these runs, I mean, we're their last resort. So if I if I let headquarters impact my attitude, now Engine 14 goes out there. Well, if Mrs. Smith doesn't have anybody else to come pick her up, who's going to go fix her door? Right. And I can't really blame Engine 14 because it's not their local. They don't know, and I'm all tied up. So I think all of these things, you know, I, I, I've chased like 17 rabbits here. <laughs> but if you put them in a line, they all connect to each other. Absolutely. So it's yeah. like, hey, man, I get it. Life sucks. You got an idiot chief. You know, there's there's plenty of firefighters walking around and saying Dennis Riley is an idiot fire chief, too. It's like, OK, that's what it is. But I still have a job to do in the firehouse in the community that I serve. And that's got to be number one. Man, well said. Well said. And I I, I, I totally understand it. I mean, you, you did you hit different avenues, but they all intertwine and it connects to one message, yeah. which I'm sure a lot of firemen out here who are listening to this can relate to because no organization is perfect, but that this seems to be a lot of the questions like you would be presented. Well, chief, my sus and such isn't doing this or that, or I have a bad officer, this and that. So it, it makes total sense. Especially if you're a firefighter and you're in a situation where there's transfers or you can bid out of that firehouse, man, it's not a life sentence. It's not. Uh, I, I I know I know a very renowned fire chief, and and, and I don't. I'm not going to say names because I don't want to tell his stories. Right. But renowned fire chief, his son's on the job, and his son gets sent to a terrible firehouse. Well, I, I, an assignment he's not happy with. So he asks his dad, "You know what can I do?" And his dad says, "Listen, just be the best firefighter you can. Don't let the other people lower your standards. And sooner or later." 
someone's going to notice and you're going to be out of there. Well, within two years, the guy has transferred to the best company in the city because they come by the firehouse at seven o'clock at night and see this person out in the back by himself, throwing ladders, trying to maintain tactical proficiency, chasing tactical excellence. Somebody in the organization sees that and they say, hey, we got to get him out of there because that's a good dude. And we got to put him in a good company. So just stay the course, you know, a good dude, good woman, good whatever. If you're a good person and you pursue excellence in your craft, someone's going to notice it. And quite honestly, if you say, well, you know, this place is, well, bro, you ain't a tree. You can move. If your view of the organization total is that bad, first off, talk to some people because it's probably your perception. Now, your perception is your reality. Mm-hmm. But you know, can the entire organization be contaminated with this? Well, if it is, don't expect it to change. And if the organization is that, uh, if it's that loss, here's the other thing that we have to remember, too. How do you learn how to be a leader? Well, you learn how to be a leader from the people who are leading you. Right. So if you tell me your entire organization is corrupt when it comes to this, don't expect one generation just to change it because a lot of the up and coming leaders are looking at the leaders now. Mm-hmm. And that's how they're going to learn. And that's how they're going to lead. And like I said, your perception is your reality, but is it really? You know, there's whole places. Well, look around. I mean, is everybody, a, a, you know, is everybody a bad person? Well, no, there's some good people out there. Even in what may be the most dysfunctional organization, you probably got good people who are studying, who are learning, who are doing the right thing and just waiting for their opportunity to promote so that they can start making changes. And I think sometimes you just got to think about that. Look, you know, I've been there before. I've worked for lousy people. It's like, oh, man, just another day in the firehouse. But then I go into the firehouse and I say, well, you know what? If Mrs. Smith has an emergency, I'm the only one she knows how to call. I'm the only one she's going to call. So I'm going to let that other stuff go. And I'm going to focus on being really good for Mrs. Smith's emergency. And whatever that is, it's, you know, her house is on fire or, you know, she needs to get picked up and put back in her recliner, man. I, you know, I don't, I didn't get to choose. When I came on to the, to the service, they didn't give me a form and say, okay, check which runs you don't want to go to. Right. Well, it's all part of it, man. You know, and, and, and at the end of the day, we all get to be firefighters. We all get to be part of something bigger than us we get to be part of the best job on the face of the earth and you know that's not the way you're looking at it i'm not going to say you're a bad person i'm just going to say maybe you're not a good fit you know and and there's plenty of occupations out there that are very honorable that do good work that i wouldn't be a good fit for so just accept that fact and figure out where you're going to make the most positive impact for what you want out of life all right well said, you can't argue with anything you just stated there. Um, what keeps you personally invested to stay positive and continue loving this job? Well, I, you know, for me, I think there's one simple answer to that is, uh, and sometimes I get emotional when I say this, and, you know, emotions are okay as long as, you know, they're focused in the right way. 
I put a, I put my hand on the Bible and swore in front of the public and my family that I would do my job to the best of my ability. So help me God. Well, that's what I say. It's just that simple. Mm-hmm. And when I get to the point where that doesn't mean anything to me, that doesn't resonate with me, then it's probably time to move on. But, you know, I was raised in a household that said your word is your bond. And if you're going to take an oath to serve the public to the best of your abilities, that means you got to stay fired up, man. That means you got to keep on training. That means you got to keep on working on it. That means, you know, I'm retired, but I have my own company. I travel around. I do a lot of training. I live down here in Florida and man, it's hot. But, you know, I'm I'm out there in my garage at seven o'clock in the morning doing PT. And sometimes I do it in my turnout gear and I have my own air packs. And sometimes I do it wearing an air pack because when I go out to train people, I have to be able to work to the best of my abilities. And that means work. And it still means something to me to be part of something that's bigger than just me. It still means a lot for me to be able to say that I'm part of the American Fire Service. And if I'm going to claim the title, I mean, I have a quote that does surface on the Internet every once in a while. And that says, if you're not willing to do the work, don't claim the title. It's just that simple. I, I, I don't allow the question you ask. I don't allow to get too complicated. It's simple to me. I took an oath. I'm claiming the title. If you're going to claim the title, you got to do the work. Just do the work. You know, I often, you know, I often say, do the work, man. Nobody cares. Right. You know, right. you can, nobody, no, nobody cares. My wife always corrects me. Well, I care. I said, all right, well, I'll give you one or two. You know, my kids probably care at some point in time too. But at the end of the day, nobody really cares. Just do your job. They expect you to do your job. So if I'm not working hard, I can't live up to that. And I just, and and I don't want, uh, I'm the type of guy, I don't want anything given to me. You know, I, I right. came from that environment and, you know, I spent time in the army. It's like, bro, if, if, if you want it, earn it. If you don't want to earn it, you're not going to get it. Right. So I want to be able to claim the title of being involved in the American Fire Service. So I got to go earn it. It's just, that's, it's really kind of that simple for me. And it, it is a testament because you're still putting in putting the work through PT in gear, <clears throat> sometimes with an air pack in Florida heat humidity. I mean, that's that says something right there. Yeah, I've got I've got a couple of, of events that you know I, I'm working with other companies, and these things are going to start to come out. And I I can't you know I can't put the cart before the horse. It's you know I'm subbing out to some other folks. But we got some plans to do some pretty serious stuff. And if I'm not out there doing the work, getting myself ready for it, I'm going to come up short on training day. And, and you know, what's so important to me is people are going to spend money out of their own pocket to give up time with their family to travel and come and be part of these events. Well, I'm not going to give them a half-assed product. Because I've said through the entire course of my career, I'm going to do my job to the best of my abilities. 
So, you know, get out there and just get it done, man. It's just, it's just that simple. Like I said, I'm really, I, I really try not to overcomplicate things. And when things are put in the simplest terms, it's easy to figure out what the answers are. And we have enough really dynamic, complicated stuff happening on fire ground. Let's not make all this other stuff complicated. Let's save our brain power for that three o'clock in the morning call where we got a real dynamic situation going. You know, we got fire extending to a couple floors in the garden apartment. We got reports of people trapped. We got then we're short staffed, we're task saturated and staffing, you know, limited. So let's keep our brain power ready for those days instead of you know chasing these chasing these things that we really should have answered before we even decided to join the fire department, in my right. opinion. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, how big is it where, how big is it to you where if you're, uh, if you're instructing a student to, to be in the same attire, because I've heard this and I believe it. If, if you were <laughs> going to teach, whether it's a new candidate or a seasoned veteran, something outside in the field, you should be in the same attire that they are in, not, in pants and a shirt while they're in bunker pants and an air pack sweating. Yeah, I think that's very, very important. Now, at times, you know, you may want to modulate that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to do three sessions in the morning and two in the afternoon, you may have to kind of moderate that a little bit to save some gas in the tank because that afternoon group, needs to get the same quality training as the morning group did. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's kind of like do as I say, not as I do. And man, that, that really, that doesn't, that doesn't really make it. You know, I think there's a real, I think there's a problem with that. And when we get in the end and we start talking about, you know, issues in the fire service, I want to talk about who does training and who gets put into training and who gets assigned to the training division because if we put the right people in there they get it and if we don't they don't and then they start sending mixed messages and then what we really do to people is we put them in a position that's very confusing it's like well if all this is important then why don't they have their stuff on mm -hmm. so yeah i agree i i agree with that i i would say i i, I get about 85 percent of that Okay. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I think it is important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Uh, what are your ultimate goals, whether short-term or long-term? And uh, I'm sure you probably hit, hit a few already. Yep. Uh, you know, once again, something, something that I try to keep very simple because it allows me to focus on it. Uh, I, I'm friends with Danny Murphy, retired lieutenant out of FDNY rescue too. And Danny says, Leave it better than you found it. That's my goal. I want to just leave it better than I found it. On the personal side, you know, I, 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 I've held every rank from firefighter to fire chief. So, and, and there's something to that. I mean, it, there, there is, you know, there is an element of personal satisfaction that I have from doing that. But really, my goal is I just want to leave it. I want to leave it better than I found it. And I want to say, stay engaged as long as my health and my attitude hold out. And as long as those things are good, man, I want to be part of the American Fire Service because I don't think there's anything better on the face of the earth. Well, yeah, 
maybe the U.S. Army, because, you know, I'm a soldier at heart. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very, you know, committed to living, you know, the morals and being a good example of what an Army vet is. But, man, that's I, I just want to live better than I found it, man. You know, now along the way, I want to impart the knowledge and the wisdom that I've had. You know, I've done some really good things and I've done some stupid things. You know, I've made some mistakes. So can I share those with the up and coming generation of firefighters and especially officers and chief officers? Yeah, that's a goal. I want to be able to do that. But it's just all about leaving it better, leaving it better, being a good representative of the American fire service. You know, when I, when I introduce myself as a firefighter and, you know, when we go into social settings or whatever, if I introduce myself, I say I'm a firefighter. Well, I want to be able to represent that. Well, and I think I'm doing a good job of that. I, I would say you have, I would say very many would support my answer with yes, you, you're definitely doing, yeah, doing very well on that. You know, that's real. Uh, that's really what I'm looking for. You know? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, now, of course, if the if the dream job dropped into my lap, I would consider going back to work. But it's kind of it's got to kind of be on my terms because you know being retired down here in Florida ain't a bad thing. So, yeah, you kind of sparked my interest. Can I ask what the dream job would be? Ah, uh, you know, I, I say the best job I ever had was as an operational chief. Okay. You know, chief officer on shift work, you know, interacting in firehouses, coaching, mentoring, helping, helping uh, new officers, helping new firefighters develop and then making runs. But, you know, quite honestly, those positions are normally internal positions and people move up the chain. So, I'm probably just going to be hanging out here at the pool. And you, never yeah, you, know, I, you know. You never know. You never know. Every once in a while, I'll say that my wife will give me a look like, you got to be kidding. And I go, well, you never know. And <laughs> then, we, then, then we try to, I, I, I try to move the conversation to something else. Right. Yeah, right. You never know. You never know. Okay. Okay. Um, one, one question I do like to ask any former fire chief. So, you know, nowadays, uh, not saying all fire chiefs are in this category, but you have a lot of firefighters always kind of wonder, well, we haven't seen a chief in weeks or, and it all depends on the size of the department, of course, sure. but um, can you explain what your day-to-day would be like as a fire chief? Because a lot of firemen don't really know what fire chief they like they know the fire chief has to go to this meeting sure. this budget but like i always like to hear from a a former fire chief's perspective like mm-hmm. what would your day consist of well i you know for me and you know i'm probably not the i'm probably not the rule i'm the exception i always try to get in the firehouse early i always try to get pt done you know i would do my own pt in the firehouse and and part of that is not trying to show off to everybody, look at me, look at me. What I'm saying is we hold each other accountable. And I believe in a high level of tactical fitness because that's the environment we work in. So if that's my expectation for you, then I have to be able to demonstrate that, yes, it's important to me too. So I do PT and then I'd always kind of 
go up, hang out in the kitchen for a little bit, drink some coffee, you know, talk with everybody, get cleaned up. And I'd kind of, you know, head to my office. I you know there's a hundred emails and I'm doing this and we got you know strategic planning and we're in the budget cycle and all this other type of stuff. But then I would always in my last job where we were living in town, I would always go to lunch with my wife. Okay. And you know, and 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 sometimes you know it's important to you know grab a meal in a firehouse, call the guys up, say, hey, listen, man, I'm gonna run by for lunch. But I found that a lot of times fire chiefs don't really do well with the work-life balance type thing because the job can consume you. And for years I did a lousy job in my work-life balance. So as I matured and got older, I would always try to go to lunch with my wife. And, and, and I would say that, you know, and, and everybody knew in my organization, that's what I did. And I made a point to say that, you know, your family and that work-life balance is important. And I really said that to let everybody know, listen, when you're on a four-day break, man, it's cool just to be dad or husband or, you know, hey, you, the trash needs to go out so you can have that healthy side of you. So, and then I'd be back in the office, uh, you know, depending on what was going on. Sometimes I'd go home for dinner and come back to the office. I'd try to make some rounds to the firehouse, you know, when I could kind of, you know, when I had enough time, you know, I had kind of a good week, I would, you know, pop into some firehouses. And then I, you know, call, call the firehouses and call the battalion chiefs and say, hey, what are y'all training on this week? You know, when are you going to train? What you got going on? And I'd pop in and I'd try to train with the people. So I would try to make myself present in the firehouse without being overbearing. But, you know, one, one thing that, you know, one thing that happens and I and I always tried to be true to this. Whenever we had a meeting, whenever we were engaged in conversations, I always wanted to be the last one to speak. Because if we're talking about something and I throw my opinion out there right away, you know, certainly some people are, going, you know, with a counter opinion, you know, don't have a problem expressing that. But if I'm the first one to put my opinion out, it shuts the conversation down sometimes. So when I go into these firehouses, I want to kind of try to be relaxed and engage with the folks because what I need them to do, and I'm good friends with Shannon Stone, and he says this all the time, I need you to tell me what I need to hear that I might not necessarily want to hear. Right. So that's why I try to get into firehouses and, you know, try to be open with that. So okay. it, it's tough. You know, you, you don't you don't really know what the chief's going through. I mean, I, you know, I give an example of chief rights policy and it comes out. And roll call comes in and everybody's reading the policy. Man, this is a stupid policy. I would never do this. Why are they wasting time? This is absolutely ridiculous. Blah, blah, you know, on and on. Well, there's two pieces that unpack. Number one is if you would never do that, why are you even worried about it? Why? Why? You, I, I would never do that. Well, good. Congratulations. Continue that. The other thing that may have happened is somebody has done that. And when the chief went to take action somewhere along the line in HR, the city manager's office, the board of directors and the fire district said, hey, we you can't discipline them because there is no policy. Mm -hmm. So 
maybe they had to write the policy to ensure that this is not a behavior that continues in the organization. Well, people get all like, oh, this is stupid. This is stupid. Eh? There's, there's more important things for them to do. And I'm not saying what I just described is the case. What I am saying that we all need to remember is when the fire chief's having these type of meetings with HR and the city attorney and the city manager, you're not in that room. Right. And you don't know, you know, you know, the byproduct, you know, the end state, you know, what came down the pipe, but you really don't know all the particulars that transpired to get to that point where the policies, you know, issue. So if you would never do that, give the fire chief a little bit of grace and understand that he may be dealing with a whole bunch of elements that you aren't aware of. And you don't, uh, and, and it could be a situation where it involves personnel and discipline and you don't have a right to know. Right. So does it really impact your firehouse? Hey, we're loading up on the engine, man. We're going out to the apartment complex and we're stretching some hose. Right. And, and, and I, I do a lot of work with officer development. I do a lot of mentoring with new officers and I tell them, 90% of your problems and all this little bickering and all this other type of stuff that gets so difficult to manage, load up on the engine, go pull hose. And when you go out there, you start pulling hose and say, okay, listen, you know, we're we're gonna, you know, we're gonna stretch up this, you know, stairwell. Now we're gonna try to do a well stretch. Now we're gonna try to do a drop bag stretch. 20 minutes into it, they forgot about all the other stuff. Right. And, you're, and because you're putting them in that position to be successful, you're controlling the environment, you're focusing on mission, you're doing all those other type of things. So even if you have that absentee fire chief, well, we never saw the guy. Here's the other thing, too, that kind of cracks me up. Some of those folks, they'll complain about never seeing the fire chief. But when the fire chief shows up, what does he want? <laughs> <laughs> Bro. <Yeah. laughs> Give him a cup of coffee, right. put gas in his car, and he'll leave. Okay? He'll be here. We're working 4896s. He'll be here for an hour. We got 47 hours at a game. Right. Just make him happy. Make him feel good. Yep. All right. No. Well, <laughs> yeah, well said. Well said. I mean, I'm sure we all can relate. Anybody listening, I'm sure can relate to that. Absolutely. And we all get into that trap, too, at some yeah. point. And you know that's the duty of working in the firehouse. You know, so we got three, four, five dudes, or you know, men and women working together, and everybody's going to have that bad day. Well, there's three other folks that can poke you and say, "Hey, you just bitched about him not being here. Now he's here. You're bitching about him. Mm-hmm. Which one do you want?" <laughs> and most people say, "Yeah, you're right." Right. And on. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, in, in your opinion, what key elements? Or, or, or factors are needed to make a good firefighter, regardless of rank? Uh, for me, there's two of them. Okay. Discipline. And discipline is that characteristic of self-regulating behavior. So I learned my job. I know how to do my job. And I maintain my skills. I'm disciplined. When you know, when I show up at the firehouse, man, I get my stuff on the rig. I'm I'm ready to go. You know, I just yeah, you know, I, I know I, I don't feel like doing PT this morning, but tactical fitness is is critical for operational success. So I'm gonna do PT. You know, I I you know I, I'm in firehouse 
And I know that we're busy. I'm working at 48. So I'm not going to stay up until three o'clock in the morning of my first 24 gaming on the internet. It's like, man, I got to shut that stuff down and I got to get some sleep because I don't know what's going to happen. You know, if I'm up at three o'clock in the morning, okay, I go to bed. Well, what's going to happen at four? I don't know that. So all these little bits and pieces are discipline and they all sum into a professional firefighter. So discipline's number one. Number two, I got to be a lifelong learner. And it's just that simple. And, you know, we talk about this. This is something else I talked about in another one of my presentations. If you look at the latest UL study that talks about victim survivability, okay, it says the most advantageous atmosphere for a victim to be in is on the floor. Mm -hmm. So how have we been teaching people to remove victims from burning buildings for the last 40 years? You bear hug them, you stand up, and you drag them out. Right. So now what we've done is we've taken that victim from the most favorable atmosphere for survival and put them into the least favorable atmosphere. And this is all out of UL study. And the other thing, you know, if you go back a UL study before that, when they talk about the pressure gradients and they talk about in-training air, as we're flowing and pushing hand lines into the seat of the fire, if we have an exhaust opposite of the intake, we entrain fresh air at the floor level. So now, not only is it the most favorable atmosphere for a victim to be in, but the action of pushing the line in has created an even more favorable atmosphere, which only enforces the fact that we need to train everybody to be able to do the leg walk and the tripod, leave the head down and drag the victims out like that. Right? The science that told us to do that has only been out there for about the last, I don't know, eight, maybe 10 years. Yeah. Okay? Everything that we learned before was from the red books and that's how we did it. Mm -hmm. So if we want to provide the best service, we need to be lifelong learners and not just the chiefs and the captains, Everybody, everybody needs to know that. Everybody needs to be able to interact. Everybody needs to be able to figure that out. So I'm saying discipline and being a lifelong learner is what's truly important. Okay. And I think if you have those two things, then you're going to be in a position to be successful and everything else is going to be good. Absolutely. Everything else yeah. will flow from that. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of people, you know, always use the word motivation. But motivation will only gets you so far. It's discipline. I, I've got a quote that I put up on my uh, on my Facebook page. It said, "Motivation gets you to the starting line, but discipline gets you to the finish line." Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's good to have motivation, but yeah, you yeah. know, you can't you can't just live on that. It has to be because you can have a bad night, been up, you know, till two three in the morning, and you get up and it's like, you know, I'm not going to PT today. Well, your motivation is not there, but discipline is going to wake up, knock you on the shoulder and go, hey, yeah, OK, you only got two or three hours, but you still got to work out. Go get it. You know, you know hey, you're going to do instead of doing 50 reps, you're going to do 20 reps. OK, I, I mean, I get that. You know, you save a little gas in the tank in case you get that run on the second 24. But that discipline 
you know, one one thing about, you know, and I talk about, you know, the science of the way people think, and it's so, so important for us. You know, science tells us that it doesn't take all that long to break a habit. You know, I don't PT today. Uh, okay, well, it's just one day. Well, if I don't PT for about four or five days in a row, because all these other things happen, now I start breaking that habit. And you get to the point where it becomes easier not to than to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, you know I, 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 I didn't get a chance to PT in the morning before I went to work because I got to take the kids to school. So I go to work, we get real busy and I don't get the chance to PT. So then we get a couple runs at night. I don't PT. So I get up the next morning, you know, I don't PT. Then when I get off of work, you know, I go home and I got a sick kid that I got to take to the doctor. So there's another day I don't PT. Now, all of a sudden, I strung four days in a row where I don't PT. And very rapidly, it becomes easier not to than it is to do. So and that's why I say discipline is so important because discipline will carry you through that. Discipline will say, all right, you know, man, you're spent. You're not going to be able to do a, you know, a 90 minute workout. But go on out there and do two sets of 10 burpees. So you did something and that maintains the habit. Okay. All right. Uh, my next question, we kind of hit earlier on non-motivated cultures, crews, organizations. So I, I don't, I'm not going to ask that, but I would like to ask a different question with you being a chief officer. Um, and I'm sure you were an incident commander on a lot of scenes throughout your career. In your opinion, which one do you like better? Do you like commanding inside of the vehicle where you're by yourself, windows up? Or do you like commanding from where you're um, working out the back of your trunk and you can actually see everything going on? Mm-hmm. Depends. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. And, and not, you know, not to be, you know, not to be a smart ass about yeah, it. But yeah. No. Uh, depends. You know, so we would, you know, we, we would catch, you know, a lot of kitchen fires, bedroom fires, whatever. It's what we call basically our one-on-one fire. You know, we got one engine, one truck working. We got three, you know, a total of three engines and a truck and, and the chief on the box. We're only really working one-on-one. Okay. We got that, you know, we got the hose and nozzle package. I mean, we're, we got everything that we need. In those particular incidents, I'd like to command from the front yard. Okay. I got two radios. I mean, I got one hanging on one side, one hanging on the other side. If I hear this one talking, it's the tactical frequency. If I hear this one talking, it's the command frequency with me transmitting back to the dispatch center. In the front yard, I see the people as they pass me and they mm-hmm. see me. So, and, and, and Clyde Gordon says this, and it's very true. I make that moral commitment. I'm sending you in there to a hazardous situation. I'm out here to try to take care of you. So now I'm watching the smoke production. I'm looking at the hose lines if it's moving, and I'm looking at the roof, the roof line. So I can do that very well from the front yard with, you know, basically a one-on-one assignment. Now, if it grows, I've always got to position my vehicle where I can get back to it quick enough. Okay. And the other thing that I kept in my pocket is laminated cords. So, I, you know, and at this one-on-one bread and butter fire, all of a sudden we get a collapse and it's mayday, mayday, mayday. I can pull my card out real quick and just, okay, these are the three things I got to do, revert back to the car. 
if I pull up and it's a big fire, you know, it's a big, you know, it's a building, it's an apartment building. I got exposures. I got something like that going on. I'm going to want to stay in my car because I need to have, I, I don't want to say that the bread and butter fires require us to think less. What I'm saying is we have more exposure to them. So we're able to move through that rapid prime decision-making very quickly. When we get the one-off ones, we kind of need that environment to be able to focus our, our thoughts on. But if you're going to be in the car, and I truly believe this, then you got to have a chief forward somewhere. Because company officers, for the most part, are supervising companies. And what we have to realize in the fire service is if you've got a three-person engine company, the captain is really nothing more than a firefighter with a red helmet on. Right. Because they got to get involved at the task right. level. It's unrealistic to expect them not to be able to get involved at the task level. New York City with five people in five, that's you know one of the things in New York City, they have five member engine companies. That officer's not getting involved, but they got five people mm-hmm. in that company. They got the officer, they got the chauffeur, they got three people in their managing line. Mm-hmm. If you got a three-person engine company, you got to manage one as an officer. Right. So in those situations, if I'm going to stay in the car, I want a chief forward who can, you know, really kind of give me that overall because I'm kind of removed from really having that up-close look at the smoke, up-close look at the lines, up-close look at that, you know, roof line, you know, up, you know, inside getting a feel for what that heat is. And uh, if you're going to be a good incident commander, one of the things that I I really encourage you to do is look at Project Mayday and look at the, the top 10 that uh, NIOSH has come out with, those contributing factors, mm-hmm. line of duty fatalities. Look at some of the stuff that Project Mayday says, hey, it's getting hotter in here. You know, that's a big red flag. Right. And if I'm in the car trying to manage this building fire, I want a chief in there to say, hey, what's going on? Hey, 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 Frankie, what's going on in there? Right. So I think that's, you know, the best way to work. And if you're going to be a good incident commander, I think you got to work at all three. You got to be able to work in the front yard. You got to be able to work, you know, kind of at the back of the rig with the doors open, kind of looking at the fire. And at some point, you got to be able to just back in the driveway, put the windows up and lock the doors and keep everybody away from you to make decisions. And this can happen so quick. This can happen so quickly. And you've got to be able to transition from one to the other to the other. And I would say for incident commanders, Look at the video that was just done from the ATF on the two line of duty deaths that happened in Maryland. Maryland, yes. Lynn, and I forget the captain's name in uh, Howard County. Uh, it's on the tip of my yeah. tongue. Yep. Hold on. I'll tell you because that's going to bother me. It was. Yep. And uh, da, 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 da. Flynn and. Uh, holy cow, that's going to bother me. Uh, I'm getting my phone out. I know it's like <laughs> I'm, oh I'm going to the phone on this one, but you know, with all due respect to those two individuals, my point is you got a major mayday situation that happened at a residential property, right? Josh so, Laird, Captain Laird, uh, thank you, thank you, and, and and may he rest in peace. You know, just a just 
horrible incidents. But you know, if you pull up and you got white smoke shown and you and you want to manage from the front yard, you think that you can just understand that a residential property, something like that can happen. So you're going to have to be able to kind of move through these three phases mm-hmm. based on what the incident's doing. And I will say this. I don't think there's a fire department in suburban America. Now, if I'm in a rural fire department, I'm a volunteer firefighter in Idaho. I got a 300 square mile. That's different. But if I'm in suburban America, surrounded by fire departments, there's not a fire department in this country that should be going to fires on initial dispatch with less than two chief officers. That's that's what I think. That's what I feel. And if I had, if I was on active duty, if I was running an organization, if, if I had, you know, any type of influence, we would have multiple chief officers responding on the initial dispatch because of these very incidents that I'm talking about. Because when I pull up at this 5,000 square foot McMansion, you know, I may want to be real close to try to get those lines moving real fast. Mm-hmm. But then I understand what happened in Howard County and that next arriving chief, I can put them inside and then I can drop back to the car. And I, I that's, that's what makes sense to me. Okay. And I don't think that, I don't think it's this way or that way. I think it's both ways and it's got to fit the situation. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And we, uh, we actually watched that like two shifts ago um, at, at, at lunchtime and it was eye opening. It really was yes. because we have, McMansions like that in our area, and we've uh, we we asked our fire marshal, and he he has stated that we do have the CSST, I think that type of yep. wiring in our jurisdiction. Yep. Yeah, I think every I think just about every jurisdiction in the country that has natural gas service has got that because that's the industry standard now. So, okay. Yeah, I I think people should be watching that. You know, I think people should be thinking about that. I, I mean, if I was the fire chief. I I would be sending that link out. I want everybody to watch this. I sent a link out. Man, where was it from? Somewhere out in Arizona. And I can do some research and I'll I'll, I'll send you the link. But there's a YouTube video. There it's it's in a college town. You're moving in. They've got all your boxes piled up in front of the door into the duplex, and the boxes catch on fire. And the fire, you know, migrates into the attic space. So now they're totally trapped in this apartment. And three of them end up huddled up in a bathroom and they're talking to 911. Man, how many of y'all got, you know, how many of y'all work in a college town? Man, that happens every year. Okay. How many of y'all work in towns that have duplexes with limited access? Mm-hmm. And that could happen. That fire down, just you know, now I'm describing could happen in suburban America any day. Gotta look at those things, gotta think about those things. Gotta think if you know, based on that, watching that video, if we get in on something that looks like this, how aggressive are we gonna be? And one of the things that they learn after the fact is you know, they were an inch and three quarter fire department, just like most of suburban America. And the fire had such a head start on them, it overpowered the inch and three quarters. And they ended up putting multiple inch and three quarters in service to get the fire knocked down to get into the apartment. Well, watching the video, 
kind of resonates to say, hey, there are times where we're going to have to pull the two and a half. Mm-hmm. That's all there is to it. And, you know, the other thing is, well, you know, the two and a half, this, two and a half, that. I mean, whatever, man, you pull that two and a half, man, you can pin that line with your knee and flow water. All right. 266 gallons a minute. Man, you could throat punch a fire and not, you know, you're not moving the line. Pull it off, pin it, get a knockdown. Chauffeur pulls the inch and three quarter, transition to the inch and three quarter, push it. And these are all plays that should be in your playbook. But when we see these type of incidents, they resonate with us. So then we sit at the kitchen table and we say, okay, well, you know, what is our play on this? What would we do? Hey, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? You know, I know agencies that have gone to a 75 foot, two and a half inch donut roll in the chauffeur's compartment with a smoothbore nozzle on it. So instead of pulling the 200 and trying to flake out all this hose, they roll that thing out, hook it up to a discharge, and that's their quick blitz line. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Now, I don't know if that should be the fire service standard, but these folks sat around the kitchen table and they came up with this and they were able to convince administration to buy 75 foot rolls of two and a half as an attack line. Yeah. Yeah, Sounds I mean, if, if, yeah, if it works for them and not and like you said, not everything works will work for every jurisdiction, yeah. but you have to do what works for your area, for your department. When I have firefighters sitting around the kitchen table, making decisions, having conversations about fighting fire, good things come from it. That's simple. Yes, yes sir. All right. Uh, in your opinion, what do you think the... What is at least one thing the American Fire Service can improve on? I think that we need to do a lot more time effort in talking to people about the mental aspects of being able to operate in a high threat, high risk environment. So I've got a million examples about this. Number one is if you're going to go into training or you're going to be responsible for training, there's a whole there, there's a whole host of books that are available for you to read to understand how the human mind works and operates in a high threat environment. On Combat by Grossman, The Talon Code by Coyle, and I forget who wrote Going Pro. Okay? But those are three books that really kind of lay everything out. We need to talk to people. Trainers need to understand this totally. And on the first day of recruit school, we need to talk to people about the four levels of competency, where you go from unconscious incompetence to unconscious competency. And people need to understand that this is a long process that's built by repetition and repetition and repetition. So as an example, I don't have this conversation with recruits you know you're a recruit shut up do what i tell you 20 push-ups information you know all this type of stuff mm-hmm. right? so now i have them donning their air pack for an hour okay right? this is skill development but i don't talk about that they're just donning their air pack you know? after about 10 minutes it turns into a big suck fest because, you know, they know how to do it. I mean, damn, I've been doing this for 10 minutes. And I got to be out here for another hour. Well, what we're really trying to do, and if we don't explain it, they don't know it, is we're trying to build unconscious competency 
in your ability to put your air pack on so that that action becomes instinctive and reflexive so that the myelin production in the neural pathways from your brain that signals you to put the air pack on to the actual receptors and muscles that make that happen increases over repetitions. And the more of the myelin production we have, the faster that neurotransmission system works. That's how the human mind works. But we don't talk to anybody about that. We just, ah, just go out there, roll hose. Just go out there and do that. Just go out there. And a lot of things, because when I was in the fire academy, that's what I said. You know, oh, you know, we're we're 20 minutes into a two-hour sup fest, and we're just going to do this over and over and over again. Nobody explained to me the real reasons behind it. Right. And then, and then, you know, another issue is we train people how to put their air packs on in it in the parking lot. Well, they're riding on the rig. Rig. But what yeah. we need to do is we need to do we need to build benches. And we need to put brackets on the benches and put the air packs in the brackets. So they're going to do that action in a seated position like they're going to a run. Right. So that every time they put their air pack on, okay, all their buttons, knobs, they're in that position. Right. And by doing this, we build up those neural pathways. And when I fast forward to when you go out to the firehouse, I want you to be unconsciously competent in putting your air pack on because you've done it so many times so that when you're going to this run, if you're consciously competent, you've got to focus on the task, basically. Okay, step one, step two, step three. Well, on day one in the firehouse, I want you to be unconsciously competent. So when you're putting your air pack on, on that rig, going on the fifth run that you've ever been on, you hear the radio saying, we got multiple victims trapped. And I know, and this is something else, another weak spot, we train people how to make good decisions. I know based on arrival order, I'm going to be making a grab or I'm going to be pushing inside and make the grab. So not only do I want to be able to get my air pack on, I want to be able to listen to the radio, not focus on this task. Now I got a heads up. Now I'm going to throw my mask on. Mm-hmm. instead of waiting until I get to the door and trying to get my mask on because it's my fifth run and I'm fumbling around. I t- turn into 10 thumbs, but we got three people trapped in that building. The engine's pulling one out, but we got two more. And based on your arrival sequence, you know that you're going to go in there. Right. So we build unconscious competency. But, you know, does your fire academy talk about these type of things? A lot of them don't. And when I travel around and listen, there's some great fire departments that are doing great things and they get it. They totally get this. But if you're working in suburban America, more than likely your firefighters have gone to some regional car wash type fire academy where you go in one end, come out the next end. You know, you got your certificate, you show up at firehouse, small suburban fire department. Weak orientation. We teach you how to fill out your timesheet. We do all your mandatory training. You're right to know all this, blah, blah, blah. Report to engine three next, tomorrow. And then two hours after you're at engine three, you're still trying to figure out where the bathroom is. You get this run. Okay. What do we do? I, and Mrs. Smith, had you scheduled your fire tomorrow, the experienced crew would be on. Right. 
If your fire was tomorrow, the person in the nozzle seat would have had 12 years on. Sorry, person in the nozzle seat's got two days on. Okay. That's why I say, you know, we need to start spending some time. I think we bring great people into the fire service. I don't think we bring a, a bunch of duds into the fire service. And I think with the quality of people we can attract to, to the fire service, especially an individual department that understands culture and, and mission focus and all these types of stuff, things. If I explain this to the recruits on day one, they understand how important it is to build these skills. They understand the value of sets and reps. It's just not they're doing this to find me doing something wrong so they can make me do push-ups. And I mean, I, I, I think that's an issue. I think that's an issue service-wide, not every place, but a lot of places. And that's my thoughts. No, I, I, I can't argue that. I mean, that, those are your thoughts, but you're, you're spot on on a lot of things, especially, I like that idea, especially because, I mean, it, it hit the nail for me when I was going through Recruit Academy, you know, you were always taught the air pack in a, in a, in a flat, wide open area, not sitting in the back of the truck, yep. having a maneuver, you know, yep. with, with your, with the, with the seatbelt and, and doing all that. So, I mean, yep. I'm sure till this, to this day, there are academies that are teaching like that and not thinking the way you are. Yeah. Build benches and put the brackets on the back of the bench and let them sit down and put their stuff on. Absolutely. You know? And the other thing is, you know, we send, you know, we send tired old engine 14 out to the fire academy and that's the one they train on, but then they go to the firehouse and it's engine three, a totally different engine. Mm-hmm. Well, we've created habits and patterns of behavior based on that. And, you know, as soon as they walk through the door, the captain needs to take the new people and say, hey, listen, man, we're going to do some gear donning drills real quick. We want you to get in on that rig. We want you to know where where everything is. We want you we want to pull the rig out behind the firehouse and we're going to pull the line a couple of times because you've never pulled line off of engine three. Mm -hmm. Engine three is a 2018 something with crossways. Well, the fire academy engines of 1978 Ward of France and everything's coming off the back. Okay. So we want to get you spun up from day one. You know, what, one of the things that I want to do as a supervisor, as an officer, as a captain, as a chief, is I want to get my people as comfortable as they can be doing their job. I want to put them in the position to be successful. So that means that we're going to do this. And the day before the probie shows up in my firehouse. I'm telling my folks, look, we got a probie coming in tomorrow. And you know what? We're going to have some long work days. But the fire department trusts us with a new person. Mm-hmm. And that person's career is going to be shaped by what we do in the first 30 days. So get a little extra sleep and just understand we're going to have some long days. Just understand we're going to pull a lot of hose. Hey, we're going to throw some ladders. And that's the way it is. You know, and I just kind of tell my folks that's what it is. And everybody's ready for it. Because the other thing that I do is whenever anybody comes to my command, I talk about my values, trust, operational excellence, team before self and hard work. That's what my command is going to value. That's the way we're going to look at things so that when that new probie shows up, you know, operational excellence, teamwork, trust, hard work isn't like, oh, crap. 
you know right it's just the way we it's just the way we do business so absolutely absolutely um is there anything else you'd like to 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 put out there any messages you want anybody to to hear I, you know I, I you know the way you structured everything man i really kind of hit everything you did you yeah, did yeah we really kind of hit the important points i mean it really gave me a chance to talk about how i see things and what i think's important and you know i just tell everybody listen this is the greatest job on the face of the earth if it isn't then go find the greatest job right absolutely okay? go find <laughs> it. you know I, you know and look if you're in a tough situation in the workplace try and make it a little bit better okay just work on yourself understand that bad assignments probably won't last forever but if you're in this bad situation you know as we talked about you know before you know unmotivated coworkers or whatever don't lower your standards to them right i always tell everybody listen you know, and I actually had an officer tell me, tell me, uh, you know, tell me, you know, man, uh, you, you make us look bad. Bro, I'm not making you look bad. You're doing it all on your own. Right. You're doing it all on your own. And even if it's that firehouse where, you know, you would go out and get some huge peer pressure. If you went out there and started training in the bay by yourself, they're probably all in the lounge, mm -hmm. in the recliners. Okay. If that's the way it is, then go sit in the recliner and read. Okay. You can get a lot from reading. Go sit in a recliner and put your earbuds in and listen to a podcast. Okay. Understand tactical, tactical imagery. Science tells us tactical imagery can produce about 85% of the benefits of doing an actual rep. So what I'm saying to you is if you're in a company, don't own train, they don't do whatever, sit in a recliner, close your eyes, and from point of view, first person, envision yourself pulling a line off of the rig and stretching a line. And do that over and over and over and over again. And science tells us that tactical imagery, which is what I just described, is about 85% effective as doing the actual rep. Science did you know they did experiments? People that engaged in tactical, uh, tactical imagery increased their performance substantially over the control group who didn't. So I'm in a lousy firehouse, unmotivated guys don't want to train, don't want to do anything. You're not going if you can't change them, you can't change them, and you right. probably can't. Don't lower your standards, use all these tools that are available to you. And if you keep on doing the right thing, somebody's going to notice you and they're going to get you out of there. I work with a bunch of slugs. They don't put their gear on. They don't. Well, you probably can't make them. But if you show up at every fire and you got your gear on, you're right. right. Somebody's going to look and say, hey, man, that's the only dude engine free that who's dialed in. Yep. And a boss, there's, I mean, in the worst fire department, there's going to be some bosses that care. And the boss is going to see that and say, hey, man, that dude, that woman's dialed in. You're working with a bunch of slugs. And you know what? We got to get them out of there so that they don't become a slug. Mm -hmm. And bosses understand that. So if you'll just play the long game, commit to being the best that you possibly can, set your own standards, set your bar, be disciplined, be a lifelong learner, 
something good's going to come to you. And you just got to stay the course, man, because it is the best job on the face of the earth. You know, if you give up that opportunity, you know, I, I, I say this a lot. You don't know what's going to happen a year from now or two years from now. Right. If you give up on yourself, you don't know what opportunity is going to present itself two years from now. Because mm -hmm. someone is chasing the dream. Someone's working hard someone's not going to let that affect them. Someone is going to go do PT when they're tired and they don't feel like it. And you know what? When that opportunity comes, if it's you or them, who gets it? Right. The work the hardest. And it's coming. Everybody, every successful person I know in this business has been in a bad situation at some time or another. Right. Because that's the way it goes, man. Right. That's be true to yourself live up to those things that i said and something good will happen absolutely <laughs> hit it on the nail chief that's for sure i try um if anybody wants to get a hold of you to contact you uh for, for any classes how would they go about that sure um uh, email is chfd cherry hill fire department harley like the motorcycle at gmail and my facebook page you know, that's my Facebook page, my personal stuff. That's where I put like pictures of my kids and whatever. My business page is First Line Fire Service Training LLC. And that's on Facebook. You can reach out to me, message me. Uh, you know, I, I travel. Uh, you know, I, I do a little commercial for myself. My rates are very reasonable. I travel. Uh, I, I really enjoy what I do. I'm passionate about what I do. And I think that I have a lot that I can offer any agency. So just trying to make it better, man. That's right. Know. That's it. Cool. Leaving it better than you found it. Yes, sir. <laughs> awesome. Chief, I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you taking the time to, to do this and talk shop with me. It's been great. It's been awesome, man. Thank you for the opportunity, my brother. Yes, sir. Thank you. If any of the listeners out there are or know of a great firefighter who embodies the principles of being a great communicator, goal-oriented, hardworking, humble, passionate, and professional, regardless of rank, career, or volunteer, contact me at studentofthegamefirepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay focused, stay committed, and stay safe.